Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. From the Tox and Tasting Studio, this is Paul Hagen. This is Kilgo. And I'm Vicar. And uh, Berg, he uh, is getting better, but he's not 100% yet, so we gave him one more time off. Although having a grumpy Berg makes usually for a good podcast. But nonetheless, I actually have some things that Berg worked on that I'm going to talk about today. So, so we'll, he's in the show without hearing his, uh, his, his uh, voice, which makes us so happy. But we are pleased to have uh, Pastor Kilgo with us. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Good. 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 Uh, what, what kind of, what do you have, some coffee there? I have butter coffee. Butter coffee. Is that with like give, a, give you the nice give you the nice sip. So can what? you explain why butter coffee? <laughs> so butter coffee is is exactly what it sounds like. It's uh, coffee and butter coffee with butter blended into it. We use a ninja blender and we just blend the coffee in, and um, that is part of uh, carnivore. So Michelle and I are we're kind of on a little bit of a hiatus right now because it's kind of hard to do that during Thanksgiving and sure. whatnot. Um, but uh, we are on what's called carnivore diet, which is basically, uh, if it comes from an animal, you eat it. And if it doesn't come from an animal, you don't eat it. Um, coffee is the one exception cause I'm not giving up coffee. Uh, but instead of putting like cream and sugar and stuff like that, and you put butter in it. And if you get a good grass fed butter, it's kind of naturally sweet. You get all the butter fats in it, really kind of high energy and yeah, it's good. Well, Vickers on the, uh, what do you, what do you call it? The keto diet, keto, keto diet. Yeah, carnivore is is in the keto family. Yeah. So to to do like keto people and carnivore do- people like get angry get with each other. <laughs> we get along. Okay. I mean, I don't want to step in here. There's there's Koinonia Table Fellowship. Yeah, yeah. They're they're welcome to come and eat at my place. We'll only serve meat, but yeah, you know, that's how it goes. I do not have a drink with me. I'm going to ask the vicar to, if he could run to the. Clerical Air's mini fridge and get me a sparkling water. That would be amazing. <laughs> so it's like the third recording in a row. You made him do this. That's all right. I don't think the other two have been on during the recording, but <laughs> well, you know, I, I figure I really did think, oh, I should grab one of those. And I thought, you know what? You know, I'll just make the vicar get it when I get thirsty. No biggie, man. You've got a bright microphone. Every time Kilgo, I see your microphone. What, what, what kind of microphone is that exactly? Uh, HyperX Quadcast. It, it's bright to match my personality. It sounds pretty good too. It you know it for a USB mic, which is what this is. It's not an XLR mic. Um, it's surprisingly good quality. Um, so it's it's meant to be a podcasting slash gaming mic. So and HyperX makes good stuff. Hey Vicar, can you open that HyperX. please? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> HyperX headphones too. So. I've got something interesting. Uh, I've got a uh, Coca-Cola with coffee. Oh, I've seen that, that at Aldi. Gross. I actually like it. It's good. I mean, it's it's not coffee coffee. It's like just the, Coke with powdered coffee in it. Yeah. But I like it, actually. It's As somebody who doesn't like coffee but does like the smell of coffee, this is enjoyable. At my uh, oh, local coffee go. shop, I, I like to get uh, a uh, lemonade with a shot of espresso. That sounds good. Yes. 
So I've got a Tapo Chico, my favorite sparkling water here. I've just got coffee today. Maybe I'll take your other. Sure. Lime flavored. Feel free. Feel free. Uh, so uh, we are uh, squeezing in an episode before the Thanksgiving uh, celebration. Uh, do you have service uh, tonight or tomorrow or both? Uh, we've got service this evening, not this tomorrow e- though. Yeah, we're we're old school Midwest. We do it on Thursday morning, and uh, I'm leaving the service in the capable hands of the vicar. So he should do fine. You nervous vicar? What's the worst that could happen? Well, I don't um, know. Every time I go to Kansas City, church birds down. La- every time I just, this is this is the truth. Every time I go to Kansas City, we have multiple people die. So, oh, yeah, that's all. So, and by the way, Berg's sick. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, just keep that one in mind. So, uh, what are we preaching on? We're both on the one-year lectionary, so. Vicar, yep. could you like to explain what the uh, gospel reading is for yeah. us today? The Advent one is from Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 9. How about I just read that? It's sure, go ahead. Triumphal entry. But you got to read it like you mean it, okay? Oh. Don't just, don't do that eighth grade confirmation reading, please. Now when they drew near to Jer... Okay. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Beth Bethpage... To the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. All right. So uh, do you have your sermon ready for this, Gilgo, yet? I'm always ready. Are you? You're a better man than... Well, well, so, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing, right? Because, um, and and I actually love this, that... Advent and Lent mirror each other in a number of different ways, and this is one of kind of the core ways, is that Advent begins with the triumphal entry and works backward in time into the incarnation. And so at least in the one year, you get mm-hmm. the triumphal entry, and then you move into the um, the prophecy of the coming of the Son of Man and the cursing of the fig tree, and then you get John the Baptist asking, are you the one we should look for, or shall we look for another? And then you get the end of John 1, um, John the Baptist pointing at the Lamb of God. And then on Christmas Day, you get the beginning of John 1, so you're working backwards. Like working that. backwards. And then in Advent, um, you're actually working into the triumphal entry. And there, it's not as quite as kind of a nice delineation time-wise, but you are starting uh, with Advent at the, um, with the, uh, uh, the temptation of Jesus right after his mm-hmm. baptism. And you're, and you're working towards then the triumphal entry being the culmination into Holy Week, right? So right. They, they they kind of form this this book or this mirror uh, between the two. So 
the nice thing about the triumphal entry is that you get the text twice a year. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, there's a lot of kind of things that are always swirling around in my mind on what to preach with it. And th- this is something that uh, you don't really get in the three-year. You don't get this text in Advent in the three-year, from what I remember. It's been a little while for me, a few years. You get but... it sometimes. Not okay. all the time, but you get it sometimes. And so one thing, uh, as you, w- when you think of why Advent, well, it's a reminder, first of all, uh, how the king is coming. And at the beginning of the church year, um, one thing that's that's beautiful about uh, just the festivals in the church in general is uh, we're not just studying the history of these things. We're studying and looking at how we have a place in that. You know, when we, when we look at the, the birth of Jesus, he was born for us. It's our celebration. You know, the message of the angels is for us as well. Or when you look at uh, 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 Holy Thursday, it's not just what happened when Jesus gathered with his disciples. We, too, gather with him around the, the body and blood of Jesus uh, in, in much the same way. And we look at Good Friday. Good Friday is our place was there. Our sins were there. It's not just what happened. It's our place in it, even in the resurrection then. It's not just the history of Jesus rising from the dead. It's the fact that he rose for us. And so when we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, riding in to die, we have a place in that crowd. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, we sing Hosanna to the highest because the king is here as well. And just like he came in a way that was uh, humble, riding on a donkey's colt, uh, not in a way that everyone would say, recognize there is a king except for the word of God, so we too receive the king in humble ways. What you got, Vicar? Well, that's that's <laughs> it in a nutshell. Um, well, I, we just keep talking about with Advent the, and especially like the the next the second week of Advent. You know, the it's not just Jesus is coming; He came, He's with us now, and He'll come again. So you you kind of already summarized that, but that's how I would keep framing it each each week of Advent. Keep reminding that and. Well, and there's I, I I'm more and more convinced that a, that a lot of people have the you know he came in his incarnation they've kind of got that in their minds and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead they've got that in their minds and what's actually hardest for them to hold on to is that he's continuing to be here um, and you actually have this in this really wonderful way uh, grammatically in the um, the the song of the the crowd uh, they're they're singing this the psalm of ascent and um, this actually would have been the psalm that was sung on the tenth uh, of Nisan when they're going up to select the uh, the lamb uh, without spot or blemish for the Passover feast. So this is the song that they sing as they're going up um, in order to select the lamb, which is kind of a really nice parallel in what's happening um, yeah. in Jesus coming in, right? But there's this. Uh, so it's eulogamenas ha erkamenas. So the 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 coming one, right? But it's it's this perpetual action, and it's actually the same term that's used in the book of Revelation uh, three times when the Lord uh, is described as the one who is and the one who was, and normally uh, we say that the one who um, will be or who is who is coming, but it's this, um, the one who is and the one who was and the one who continues to be, right? Right, and the um, Alpha and the Omega. 
Right. So so ones with the Alpha and Omega, ones with the um the Pantocrator, the the, the Almighty. Um, and it, it seems like grammatically his almightiness, his his all might is bound up into his continual coming. Right. And so mm-hmm. so there's this this confession that's uh, that's coming out in the crowd that's so so important and and you kind of miss it um, in in the English because it just sounds like blessed is he who comes like this one time in the name mm-hmm. of the Lord. But like you said, there's a reason why we sing this in mm-hmm. the divine service. Um uh, which, which account is it where where they the Pharisees tell the, the people to to quiet down, be quiet, and and then Jesus said if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Uh, I think that might be John. That sounds like a John sort of thing. And um, uh, because that that kind of goes along with even the whole creation itself, uh, can kind of recognize, you know, who who this is. That's from Luke nineteen Luke forty. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You know what's interesting about that uh, is I always wondered if that is they would cry out in praise or whether those stones would cry out in judgment. <laughs> so so this actually is, is one of the other things that, that's on my mind with this, and it dovetails. I think that it would be in praise. And the reason for that is that when you're reading the triumphal entry, if you just read what's going on in the triumphal entry, everything is driving towards... These are people of faith, right? These are people who, uh, they, they know the prophecy of Zechariah. Uh, they know, uh, the, the Psalm and they're applying these things to Jesus, rightly so. Mm -hmm. Um, there, you, you have to read into this text any, any sort of unbelief, right? And in Luke, the only people who are there with any sort of unbelief are the Pharisees, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and so the, the implication would seem to be the way Jesus frames this and what's happened before is um, that the stones would cry out and praise, right? All, all of creation praises God, whether we hear it or not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but th- I think this is this is where this, this text sometimes gets uh, preached uh, maybe a little bit off, and I've even done this, um, and I'm coming around to maybe this isn't the best way to preach this text is um, to take this and say, oh, well, you know, uh, this... Uh, this crowd later on is going to be shouting crucify. And one, we don't know that. We don't know that it's the same right. crowd. There's nothing that says that it is. Um, and also it's it's kind of belittling to what these people are actually here doing. If you think about all the different things, not only the confessions, but the actions, um, mm-hmm. that they take their cloaks and they put their cloaks on the on the donkeys and on the road for the, the donkeys to walk on. And these are people that are here gathered for the festival. So one, they probably, they only have one or two cloaks to begin with. Right. Um, and two, they're not at home. It's not like you can just take it home and wash mm-hmm. it and bring it back or something. So, you know, they're laying this down for the, these donkeys to walk over, and then they're going to pick them back up and wear them, right, with, you know, m- mud and dirt and donkey poop and stuff like that on them. Um, there actually is quite a bit of a sacrifice in faith that's going on here by these people. Right. I, I, I would say I may have preached it a little bit like that, m- maybe so in this way, where, where were they a little while later? I think you can sure. make you can make that kind of argument, for example, in Acts two, though, where where Peter says, mm-hmm. um, you know, this Jesus you killed to the Jews, as though the very same people who were accusing Jesus, many of them were there, hearing Peter preach. One right, thing- and I mean, th- there there may very well be overlap, but I think that um, just 
th there are times I think where we try and we, we get a text like this and it really is a, a beautifully joyous text. And I mm -hmm. think we should just let it be a beautifully joyous text because um, if you want some heavy law to preach, just wait one week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to yeah, get right. it. Um, let this preach. It's it's beautiful sermon to people. I remember one time I actually, uh, uh, Peter, do you remember when we went to Waterloo one time and uh, they had like, a, it was uh, after Thanksgiving, they had this big the Santa Claus where he was like on this parade and, and then sitting on this chair where he was going to start be able to listen to kids, you know, tell them what he want, they want for Christmas. Do you remember anything like that? It was just this odd parade. No, I don't remember anything about that. Oh, maybe you weren't around then anymore. I don't know, but... It was interesting because it was on the Saturday before the first, before the first Sunday of Advent, and how much it it mirrored the text. The only difference is, you know, you're everyone's excited. There's this parade where they're following Santa Claus, uh, and he invites the children to come to him, and he 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 kind of takes his place on a throne in a chair, uh, where people are lining up and praising him. And uh, it's almost like uh, like people wanted that kind of idea, but they just gave it to Santa Claus and for earthly joy and earthly stuff. But it was really odd to see that and then the next day to talk about the triumphant entry because it was it was odd. It was very weird how much, uh, well, you know, the, the, the Santa Claus is here. We're preparing for, for his coming with his goodies and... Uh, and how, in a sense, stolen it, I felt it's, that was. It's ironic how the world has given Santa the qualities and attributes of God, the all-knowing, you know, all-sees-everything, and uh, even put him on the throne, like you said, right? Yeah. Can't spell Santa without Satan. <laughs> Can I add something? Kilgo's shaking his head. With that, uh, you need to respond to that? So that verse that was coming no. to your mind, <laughs> Bullhagen, from uh, Luke 19 is the Luke's account of the triumphant entry. That's mm -hmm. where that's at. And it's interesting that he, Luke adds that the crowd was also saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And isn't that close to what the angels were singing? It, it's the exact same phrase. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Luke, to the Luke, shepherds? or uh, Yeah, yeah. Luke uh, brackets um, the, the incarnation um, and the triumphal entry, a book ends them with that phrase. I think I heard a seminary professor mention that he likes chiasm in Luke. I'm not sure which one that is. <laughs> <laughs> Could only guess. So, so, so you know what? What's an interest? Other uh, kind of interesting parallel into this, but it, in a in a different way, and that is the um, the so-called triumphal entry of Muhammad into Mecca. Um, and what's really interesting is to uh, contrast the two. Like, how wh what does the the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem look like versus the entry of Muhammad into Mecca? And and you can see in in the way that these two people come in um, uh, in their respective triumphal entries. because um, yeah, in some places that's that's what uh, Muhammad's is called. Uh, the there, there's a very, very big difference in the manner in which Jesus comes to us um, and the manner in which Muhammad comes, and, and Muhammad then being the, the fill-in for all false religions, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this is part of uh, Peeper makes this wonderful note that there's only two religions in the world. There's the religion of the law and there's the religion of the gospel. Right. Um, and so and um, the, there's a constant, constant battle within the, the church to to keep it the true faith because our natural right. indication or inclinations are to make it just like any other religion. Right. Well, and, and so we see like the, the primary difference at the end of the day is always in the manner in which the Lord treats us, right? So that he, he comes to us um, not, not in wrath, but in mercy, right? Now he mm-hmm. does have wrath, right? And again, like just wait a week and you're going to see that. But, um, but the, that's, that's part of the, the Lord's alien work, right? That, that's not his, um, his desire is not to come in wrath, he will, as he's promised, in against those in unbelief. But that's not his desire. His desire is to come in, in mercy. Um, and I, we've got, you know, Thanksgiving uh, tonight slash tomorrow. And this is, as I've been meditating on that, this is the thing that's always connected that, to that in the Psalms, right? Um, give thanks to the Lord um, because he is good. And either his steadfast love endures forever or his mercy endures forever, right? That's the, mm-hmm, the thing right. that almost always comes after that phrase. And so... So here you have the same thing, right? The Lord Jesus is coming in not to come and cut off everybody's head, right? Right. Um, he's coming in uh, for himself to die, right? That's the whole purpose behind this. Um, and that's part of his coming in in, in, in mercy or humility uh, on, the, on the donkey. And, it, it, and you can, you've got this great connection into the, uh, the hymn Abide With Me, right? Um, come not in terrors as the king of kings, but kind and good with healing in thy wings. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's what we pray for, and that's what we're directing people towards right. well, when um, and because, we talk about his coming. Because, to me, a good way to look at it is is this way. When you look at, uh, for example, Muhammad, he desires, uh, he cares less about where the heart is. He's more about just obedience, mm-hmm. you know? And that's why there are a lot of places their evangelism program is is uh, different than ours. It's not to win the hearts and minds of the people. It's to force obedience, force Sharia law, whether you, right. where your heart is or not. And uh, and so, in, in, in the minds of, of many, it's the best way to do that is by force. But uh, they don't mind if if their people are religious robots as long as they do what they're told to do. Um, I, you can make some correlations with our current governmental situation. Um, that's beside the point. But <laughs> here Christ comes in riding on a donkey, and what he does is, is with the gospel, he changes the heart. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he teaches us to actually love. And the reason why he gave us free will in the very beginning was so that we wouldn't be just mindless computers, but but a people who were created in his image to love him and to be loved by him. And that cannot be done by force. That is what's done by the gospel, which drives all, all everything else when we, we talk about the third use of the law, um, mm-hmm. which we do have in the Lutheran Church. <laughs> right. And, and so, so when you, it's by force or just by, uh, you know, uh, by demanding obedience without actually having the gospel, without caring where the heart is, you know there is a tendency just to have people be good, 
good people who just do what they're told, um, and even even if their hearts are far from them. And that that's what uh, actually in Jesus' day uh, was part of the issue too, uh, right. with the Pharisees. Yeah, and I mean, man, I, I never. I, I never really thought about this too much, um, but this is like when we talk about the the fundamental distinction between the two religions of the law and the gospel. Um, this is part of it, right? Is the religion of the law seeks to um, seeks to change the heart through a change in behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And the religion of the gospel seeks to change the behavior through a change in the heart, right? So the the order in which things occur, because in you you mentioned this third third use of the law. Uh, stuff we we kind of forget this that uh, the scriptures are very much concerned with how we live our lives right like the mm-hmm. end of every single epistle does this um, but the the order of the things matters right and and we forget too what what Jesus says that uh, without faith it is impossible to please him right so that um, you know we can be doing all the right things but if those things are done in unbelief it's actually not pleasing to God. And I right. think that that throws people for a loop. It's like, what do you mean? It's not pleasing to God if I'm, you know, do, I'm doing all the right things, right? It's like, yeah, but you're you're forgetting the chief good work. That the first commandment gives you the good work of faith, and you're not doing that. And so right. none of the others matter. Total totalitarian governments they believe that they can, by force, uh, teach the those in their their that they rule over, they can force them to love them. And we see that all the time. They, they try and, and, and force love. And uh, that, you know, that happens only by the gospel. In a way, the, the Holy Spirit does force us to do that by, by sending the Holy Spirit. But it's, it's a, the, the change of a heart, which any other religion, I don't really think they understand. They can't explain this. That's what makes... Uh, the Christian faith so much different, and that's why works righteousness is so offensive. Even when you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, how in the, in the epistles Paul will will always go to this third use of the law often, but it's based on an order because you are a child of God. But even when mm-hmm. God gave the Ten Commandments, what do you, how did he frame it? I am the Lord your God who brought you out, of the, you out of the land of Egypt, Egypt. out of the land of slavery. Um, it's done under the context of. I'm giving these to you because you are my people. I've saved you. Um, so even in the giving of the Ten Commandments, there is. By the way, Vicar, um, to the listener may not understand. We talked about the third use of the law. Right. Can you can you uh, just uh, give a, just a brief overview of the when we say the three third use of the law, the other two, so that people can mm-hmm. kind of get an understanding. So like the first use as a curb, mm-hmm. guide you to follow the rules. The second use as a mirror, show you your sins. And then the third use, is that's putting it into action, right? Bearing fruit by living mm-hmm. by it. Right. And, and the order is in the sense of it is, uh, that use, 30 use of the law, is not for the sake of being saved because salvation has already come right. through Christ and through faith. But that's what leads then when you, when you teach, okay, as a child of God, this is how then you show love God to God and your neighbor in a helpful way. Well, and then Jesus talks so much too about bearing fruit, and and you had a good point though at uh, that winkle we were at. What is the only use of the law that'll be in heaven? Yeah, do you ever think about that? Uh, when when people downplay the third use of the law in the kingdom of heaven, what will the only use of the law will need? 
Right. Well, it's, it's, it's the, and so as you're describing this, one of the ways I always teach the third use is this is what the Holy Christian life looks like. That, that's oh. what the third use is. Right. I've, I've heard so, that a lot too, the, a, what a life in Christ looks like. Right. And I think that that, that helps people to kind of grab onto what, what this is. So I know like the normal thing, curb, curb, mirror, and guide is usually the, right. the three. I, I always say curb, mirror, and map um, because map's a little more tangible. Um, you know, X marks the spot. This is where you well, want to go. Here's well, the path to get did there. You, did you grow right. up with Dora the Explorer? Is that maybe? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I grew up with Dragon Ball. But yeah, so uh, if, if you've never read this, um, Luther has this pretty wonderful uh, uh, little, I guess not all that little, but treatise called um, uh, Solus Decalogus Est Eternus. Uh, only the Decalogue is eternal. Um, and and he talks about how that there's this durative quality to uh, the commandments, uh, but that, like you said, the the way that these the way that we live according to them in the resurrection is what we'd call the third use, right? But it's the the Christian use, mm-hmm. right? Because everybody in the resurrection is Christian. One professor asked um, when Jesus said, "When this, I forget which verse, but when the Son of Man returns, will there be any evidence of faith?" That's when this mm-hmm. discussion came up too. What is, what does he mean by evidence of faith? You guys have any thought on that? I'm sorry, I I was thinking about something. I completely zoned out. The, <laughs> the commandments. Yeah, it's the Ev- commandments, right? Say say what you said, Ward. I'm, I'm seriously. I was like thinking about <laughs> my. Anyways, go ahead. One of the professors has brought up. I think it came up in a Greek readings. It, the text said something to the effect of when the son of man returns, will there be any evident, will he see any evidence of faith? I should find that. Okay. But I was wondering if he was talking about the third use of the law and fruit visible that people are bearing fruit in Christ. Hmm. Yeah. It's uh Luke 18, Luke 18, eight. Um, when the son of man, uh, when the Son of Man comes, will he will he find faith upon the earth? Um, right. It, I don't know where they're getting evidence from. I mean, I think you just say... Could have just been a raw Greek translation from the Greek, but... To... Well, I mean, I'm looking at the Greek, and mm-hmm. it's... Um, uh, when when the Son of Man, Elthon, uh, Hara Eurysse, so... Um, uh, then... then Shall he find, or will he find, uh, the faith upon the earth? So, I mean that the, the I mean, you maybe put evidence in there, but um, yeah, I mean the, the the question is, are are you going to find? Um, you could even say, I, I think maybe a, um, especially with with um, Piston having a uh, definite article attached to it. Yeah, the the faith, the faith, um, or um, uh, you, you could even say like the faithful, right? Because the faithful, even though that's multiple people as a whole, it's one body, right? Um, so it will you you could you can see that he's asking, you know, am I going to find the church on earth when I when I show back up? And the the answer to this is yes, right? If, for one, like should be super clear on that that the Lord will preserve His church against the gates of hell as right. it's promised. He will find uh, um, the faith on earth, um, regardless of how many actual people that encapsulates. 
Um, but what that looks like to your, to your question is it looks like uh, living a holy Christian life here on earth. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's what the faith uh, lived out looks like, e- even uh, though imperfectly, but it still is. You, you can tell the Christians who are, who are striving to keep the faith. All right. Well, I want to move on. <laughs> okay. Um, so I've got the, uh, we had a, a pastor elder meeting at, uh, at a recent, um, we do a, a forum with the pastors and the elders of the churches they serve. And uh, Pastor Berg was going to uh, present, but then he said he wasn't feeling well. So he sent me the outline and I have the outline of what is in front of me. So, hey, Peter, there's an intro we haven't played in a long time. It doesn't really apply, but I want to hear it. Uh, you, what's that? Uh, Berg's bodacious. Bodacious blasphemies? Yeah. <laughs> Is this a blasphemy? Kind of. A little bit. We, ha- we might have something a little bit more on topic anyway. Pastor Peace Theater? There you go. I'll do a Pastor Peace Theater. Uh, Kilgo, what do you think Peter should do? I think Peter should do whatever he feels like doing. I guess I can play the intro. So, uh, welcome to Pastor's Peace Theater with Pastor Berg. All right, so in this, uh, he discusses confirmation, and uh, he, he asks this question, confirmation, is it by divine command or human tradition? So it begins with Mark chapter 7. Jesus answered and said to them, uh, well, did Isaiah prof- prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition." So in this passage from Mark chapter 7, we have uh, a discussion brought up by Jesus that there is a conflict sometimes with his divine command that we are given in the word of God and human tradition. And we would say that uh, human tradition is good, but it also has a place and should be subservient to the word of God. So what are the differences between this? Well, God's word has authority. And namely, the, the law. The law has authority. And in, in the Bible, we distinguish into moral, ceremonial, and, and judicial. Uh, Vicar, do you know what the moral is? The Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. A moral law that is valid at all times and all places, which why we could is why we continue to teach our children the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Ceremonial. Do you know what the ceremonial were? Levitical laws. Yeah, valid only for the children of Israel, such as circumcision, vestments, kosher laws. And and all this uh, ended with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because he fulfilled them. And then the third, uh, judicial, we remember that the children of Israel, they were not only uh, the people of God, but they were also a nation. So they had also in that governmental laws, that uh, we don't necessarily held to. Now, some of those things, there might be some moral law within it about stealing, about sexuality, but when it comes to the punishment that various sins would receive, according to its government, we would view those as 
not binding. Right. Just the moral law is binding to us today. Any questions or comments? All right. Seeing <laughs> none. I will continue. How about traditions? Traditions are hand-me-downs from our fathers. Traditions are necessary. Uh, Berg here puts it as scaffolding of a or a precious treasure chest for the gospel. Traditions are a way in which we honor our fathers in the, the fourth commandment. If, if uh, we have certain traditions because they were led to, for us to help, help us remember certain things. Um, and God, God honors those who keep their father's traditions and uses them as examples. And, and so um, we have different levels of traditions in the church. For example, we have apostolic traditions, which would be worshiping on Sunday, the Lord's Day. We have early church traditions, such as hymns, using a lectionary and the liturgy. But we also have man-made traditions that must be changed or removed if they believe to be necessary for salvation or believe to merit forgiveness or grace. And that, that's uh, something that the, the Reformation dealt with quite a bit. Um, and I think it's something... Uh, Kilgo, how do you see this kind of intersection between... Uh, tradition and uh, and divine command play out right now right what, what do you mean right, right I now? mean I mean uh, I think there is always discussion on what is God's divine command and what is tradition uh, mm-hmm. for example um, uh, the liturgy people sure. say well the liturgy isn't the Bible and the others say well, um, it is from the Bible, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. So, so I think the, the guiding principles of the Reformation are incredibly helpful. And what Berg is kind of alluding to in this is that, um, we, we do not throw away what has been handed down to us by our fathers in the faith, because we believe that those who have come before us are not idiots, that they've mm-hmm. actually thought through these things. Um, and they've, you know, used these things and found them to be profitable uh, where we do discard things is if, one, there's an express prohibition against this thing in the scriptures, or it goes against the testimony of scripture broadly. Um, if there is a um, uh, contradiction between this and the preaching of the gospel itself, so if, if this thing uh, that we're doing actually fights against um, salvation by faith alone, um and if we start making the um, the ceremonies or the traditions into a salvific nature. And so when the confessions come along and they speak about this, they will talk about how we retain all these different things. And they, in different places, they list off a whole bunch of different stuff, uh, the, the rites and the orders, the, the, um, the clothing of, of, the, of the priests and whatnot, um, because they are beneficial to the gospel. They, they uphold the preaching mm-hmm. of the gospel. And so that kind of fundamental uh, hermeneutic, you might say, on this, on where, how do you balance the tension between something that's tradition and something that is biblically mandated, um, that's part of it. The other part is that the scriptures do give, in the New Testament, broad um, 
requirements for worship, that worship be done reverently, that it be done in good order, mm-hmm. um, these sorts of things. And so that has to be imported onto what we're doing on the worship side, at least. And then you also have the the, the very, very broad but immensely important uh, exhortation from St. Paul that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are good. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And he, right. he does that twice in First Corinthians. And so that also has to be important. So you kind of take all of that together and you apply that then to whatever you're talking about right. and look and see, you know, it, is this is this prohibited in the scriptures? And if it is, then there's no more discussion, right? Um, right. Does it but, and then the there, are, there, are, there are some, some ways and that all those sorts of things. There are some ways in which we would say, too, well, the, 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 the scriptures does not necessarily prohibit something that, that uh, people might like to do in worship or that kind of thing. But then you, 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 then you think, well, maybe the motivation behind it may be mm-hmm. unscriptural. Or, yeah, that's where you get into the First Corinthians exhortation. You right. know, it, it, may, it may be lawful for you to do this. It may be fine for you in Christian freedom to do this thing. But it doesn't actually build up the body of Christ. It doesn't uphold the gospel. It doesn't uh, help to teach the faith, right? So then maybe we shouldn't be doing this thing. Maybe there's something better for us to be doing instead. So the case study that Berg then gives for this discussion is uh, a speaking of confirmation, how it's done and and why it's done. And uh, considering which of the the confirmation, right, or the even the program itself— is divinely commanded, and which is a man-made tradition. So, firstly, that which is divinely commanded. First thing that uh, is divinely commanded in Scripture is God commands the church to teach. Matthew 28, 20. We just taught some little kids this verse. Right. Would, would you like to say it like a little, like we taught them? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Go ye therefore... Uh, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we go to the daycare next door, and it's interesting. We teach them a bunch of Bible verses, and they had some kids who were there uh, because they didn't have school, so they are also at the daycare. But they remembered pretty much right. all the verses from when they were taught about three years ago. And called out the ones you forgot to I didn't say one of them. Yeah, can we say this one? Oh, Okay. So it was kind of cool. After three years, they remembered it. The anyway, funniest thing about all that is that your cadence hasn't changed for like 20 years. It hasn't? It's been the exact same cadence on that verse. Like, And I know that because I could hear Vicar do the exact same cadence because he learned that cadence from you <laughs> mm-hmm. just now. And my daughter does it too because of the confirmation class. They did that in there. <laughs> all right. Anyways, so God commands the church to teach. Also, when it comes to teaching, God commands parents, especially the father, to teach his children, Ephesians 6, 4. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Or as we say in the catechism, as the head of the household should teach his family. Number three, God commands that pastors and preachers of the word teach both young and old. 1 Corinthians 4, 1, let a, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Um, And there are lots of other biblical examples that exhort those three. Uh, The church to teach, parents to teach their children, and pastors and preachers of the word to teach young and old. And what is the purpose of the teaching? 
uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 3, that the child might be made wise unto salvation and equipped for every good work. So this includes things like self-examination, uh, what, which means that the child is receiving the Lord's Supper to his profit or is to his hurt, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So what God commands is that fathers, pastors, and the church teach both young and old the sum of Christian doctrine so that they may be able to examine themselves, confess their sins, receive absolution, especially in the Lord's Supper, and be saved. We clear on that so far? Yeah. All right. So then, what, what part of the confirmation rite is a man-made tradition? Okay. Uh, well, um, reformers didn't look actually too kindly on confirmation as practiced by the Roman Catholics. From uh, Article uh, 13, uh, the number and use of sacraments, the confessions say, Confirmation and extreme unction are rites received from the fathers, which not even the church requires as necessary to salvation because they do not have God's command. Therefore, it is useless to distinguish these rites from the former, which have God's express command and a clear promise of grace. Luther says, uh, in particular, avoid that monkey business confirmation, which is really a fanciful deception. Have you ever heard that quote before, Kilgo? Yeah, yeah. Um, Luther also says, I would permit confirmation as long as it understood that God knows nothing of it, has said nothing about it, and that what the bishops claim for it is untrue. Because, really, Vicar, what does the Bible say about the, the right of confirmation? It doesn't. Right. So, so, uh, but I, 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 could you put that under making disciples? You know, obviously. Yeah, you, you could. Yeah. Right. But, but that goes under everything we've talked about even before right. we've gotten to the actual rite of confirmation. So, uh, many Lutheran territories did not have the rite of confirmation, but they still, still fulfilled the divine command to teach. Some Lutheran territories, like Hesse, didn't have a formal confirmation rite until 1743. So, at that time, uh, the age of confirmation. In the Reformation, children were confirmed at the age of seven. The confirmation was welded to a the parochial school where they taught the faith. And most congregations no longer have parochial schools. And uh, one thing that, that Berg mentions, too, is... Uh, is the idea of vows, of vows. And he asks a question, should children make these vows? Um, unlike a century ago, most children are not considered adults or grown up. They cannot make a vow to marry, and if they cannot make a vow to join the military, if they cannot make these earthly vows, how can they make heavenly vows? And he quotes uh, a, a, what he calls a respected pastor in the synod. I am not a fan of confirmation right in any case, but if it's going to be used, it really, it's really a right of passage to adult maturity and responsibility. I don't believe it should be asked required of, a mi of minor children who are still under their parents' authority and responsibility. For my part, I put off as long as I am able, and if I had my druthers, and assuming I was still going to use it, I would wait until a person was going off to college, moving away from home, or get a full-time job, or get married. And so he's basically wondering, have you ever thought about this, Kilgo, about a child making 
vows like that? Yeah, not in too much depth, but it, it's crossed my mind, particularly when we get to, um, uh, you know, when we're when we're teaching kids about uh, not not bearing false witness in the Eighth Commandment, right? And what does it mean to to bear false witness and its connection to making vows before because, the Lord and whatnot? Because what happens is sometimes a pastor might say, "Well, you know, you realize that uh, you know you, you're breaking the vows you made at your confirmation." And the response is, well, I was only 12. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I I can see the arguments both ways on this, right? That, you know, at, at, at what point do we cease? At, at what point do we decide that the children ought to be responsible for their confession of the faith, right? Mm-hmm. And and how do we do this in a in a in a wise way? And in a biblical way in which we're also not kind of falling into the trap of like age of accountability sort of stuff. Right. So I, I guess one yeah, way I that I, I have viewed the vows as being helpful is um, from the side of communion in this way. Um, if someone from a different tradition comes and says, well, I like to take communion, I would say, okay, well, um, I wouldn't say this, but some pastors will do this. Well, do you believe, say they're Baptists, do you believe that you receive mm-hmm. the body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And most Baptists will listen to that because they're not very well educated and say, they'll nod their head, yeah, yeah that sounds reasonable. Um, okay. And uh, and so they believe it for the moment, but have they made it their confession? And and uh, whereas confirmation is sense, you're saying this is also my confession. And it's kind of like uh, marriage in this sense. You know, a, a boy might try to convince his, his significant other before they're married, you know what? You know, I really do love you. I believe that I love you a lot. Well, well, why don't you make that your public confession, you know, in a lifelong marriage? Uh, and uh, to me, that that kind of, the same kind of thought is when someone comes up, well, you know, if that's what you truly believe, why isn't it your your confession that you've made? And that's something that the vows can do. Yeah. So one of the things that I've actually done um, with the confirmation vows is I've slightly rewritten them so that instead of asking a yes-no question to the confirmant, uh, I ask an open-ended question. So, for example, um, what is your intention regarding this uh, regarding this uh, church instead of do you intend to um, uh, receive the sacrament regularly and uh, suffer all even death rather than fall away from this faith however it's phrased um, I just ask what's your intention regarding this and then they they say the part that I would normally say um, so instead of giving them yes no questions because um, thinking in terms of a of a kid even if they're like 13 or older uh they're not paying a whole lot of attention to what you're actually asking them they're just looking at what's my answer and when the answer is just yes or no i don't know that that's entirely helpful but to actually put these words into their mouth and say um i intend to receive the lord's supper faithfully um to suffer all even death rather than fall away from this faith um i confess um that the the faith that i have learned expressed in the 
small catechism is faithful and true, like all these sorts of things, mm-hmm. that they actually say those things themselves. Well, when we talked about this in the, the forum, and, and one of the, the elders brought up a, a point, he said, well, when you talk about, for example, the Lord's Supper, can, and you're referring to those who are confirmed at seven or something, mm-hmm. uh, he was wondering, can a younger child kind of understand the, the enormity of what's going on? And I made the point, generally speaking, uh, a seven or eight year old child actually understands the enormity of of heaven and hell more than the average adult. If a seven yeah. year old steals a candy bar and hides it under his bed, that he he actually probably believes when he gets home and thinks about it, I might go to hell for this. <laughs> yeah. So so the thing is is that kids. Um, have not yet learned to allegorize everything, right? So they 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 just take the words at their face value. Right. So that when the Lord when the Lord promises punishment, they believe that. And when the Lord promises forgiveness, life, and salvation, they believe that. Right. So, um, I I actually think a, a younger communion age is significantly better for what? a that lot. Pr- and yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say you 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 run into this this problem of you get these uh, uh, kids, especially in faithful families, um, they've, you know, they're in church every single week and they're in Sunday school and they're being taught the faith at home and they come up and they're, you know, like seven years old and they're like, Hey, I want to receive, you know, I, I want to have communion. And you ask them, okay, well, what is communion? And they tell you it's Christ's body and blood. And you ask them, well, why do you want to receive it? Because it forgives my sins. And you, you get to a point there where you're like, maybe, telling this kid that's wonderful but I'm going to need you to wait another 6 years before you receive this maybe that's not entirely helpful to their faith right cuz i mean it, it, what what kind of grounds do you have to say well you're not ready yet right when that's the confession they're making that there's still i'm not right. saying there doesn't need to be further instruction but that you know like that's when i'm inclined okay let let's let's get together and do some instruction on this so that you can come and receive this with us and, and I, I kind of, what was the other point someone made too, whether, you know, how helpful it might be, but I, I kind of reminded, we do believe that the Lord's Supper is actually efficacious in forgiving sins and strengthening faith, mm-hmm. you know? And so maybe that could be part of retention, understanding what the Lord's Supper actually does. Yeah. Well, and I mean, Jesus, it's not like Jesus doesn't say anything about, you know, the faith of a child. That's what I was right? going to say earlier. Yeah. So, um, and, and in one of them, uh, what, what's really fascinating is in Luke, when you have the, um, the infants being brought to, to Luke there, it's not just the, um, the, uh, like the, the paideia, the, the general children, it's the, uh, the brephoi, which is the, um, uh, the, the very, very little infants. So, uh, brephos as a, as a term in the New Testament gets used. Only a handful of times it gets used um, to refer to St. John the Baptist when he leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. It gets referred, used to refer to Christ when he's in the manger after his, after his birth. Um, it refers to the, the ones that are being brought to Jesus um, that he says, um, uh, uh, do not hinder such uh, who believe in me, right? Mm-hmm. So that there's the, the infant faith sort of thing going on there. And then also in um, uh, Timothy— where it says, um, from childhood you've been acquainted with sacred writings that make you wise in salvation, that it's not general childhood, it's infancy there again. 
So there's a very good case to be made also just broadly in the faith of very young children in hearing the scriptures and believing them. The um, what, what you push up against with in the Lord's Supper is examining is yourself. Whether they, they can examine themselves and can they confess this, right? What are they confessing about this thing? And part of this, and, and this is a broader argument even with things like online communion and whatnot, is is there such a thing as emergency communion? And the answer is no. Um, uh, there, there, there's emergency baptism for a reason. There's not emergency communion. And so uh, someone's salvation is not in peril because they have not yet received Holy Communion. And this is where we would fight against like the Eastern Orthodox Church um, in the communion of infants. But that having been said, like we also don't want to draw it out and make it some sort of age of accountability sort of thing where, you know, you can't have this until you're this certain age because it's some arbitrary age that we've just decided. Um, you know, you can't have the sacrament until you're 13 sort of deal. And again, like going back to the, the traditions and uh, divine commands, like you just can't find that in the scriptures. So... It's, it's a tension, right, is, right. is kind of the, the point. Well, I want to get back to, because we're kind of get, r- running up a, a, the time issue here, just a, some just some finish up uh, some of the points he makes here. So as he talks about vows, Berg makes a claim that such a vow is unnecessary. Uh, they are ch- they're Christian, they attend church, they hear the word of God, they recite the creed, they pray, deliver us from evil, and hallowed be thy name. They already do implicitly what the vows do explicitly. He makes a mention that uh, making a rash vow is a sin. And he, he, for example, Numbers 30, chapter 2, chapter 30, verse 2, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or Deuteronomy 23, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin to you. Um. And so Berg says he, he struggles with these vows that we ask of, of children to make. Um, and, and so as he kind of concludes this, uh, he, he, this is what he says. He says, Children should be admitted to the altar when they have been instructed in the sum of heavenly doctrine and are able to examine themselves. Confirmation should not be attached to any particular age, and it certainly shouldn't be automatic at any particular age. How it is handled is going to depend on the pastor and the congregation. Really, there are threefold criteria. Are they baptized? Are they being catechized at home and within the life of the church? And am I able to engage them in personal pastoral care? Each congregation is going to have its own struggles with the traditions it has received, but we must be able to distinguish between God's holy word and command and man-made traditions. If the traditions no longer serve God's word, or if they actually stand in the way of God's command, they should be disposed of. So those are uh, Pastor Berg's comments on that. I really appreciate the fact that uh, he's always one that uh, is always thinking about how things could be better. And I think a lot of pastors would say, yes, we've been giving this tradition and we sometimes struggle. How, How is it working for us right now, this human right? Because um, it doesn't always... Based on the retention, right? Right. So. Well, and and uh, kind of going along with what he was saying, you know, that this is the 
the, the tension that arises in the confessions is, um, you know, and I always forget whether this is Augsburg or in the Apology, but we say that uh, one is admitted to the sacrament only after they have been instructed, examined, and absolved. Um, and then also in the small catechism, who is uh, worthy to receive this? He who has faith in these words given and shed for you, for the words for you require all hearts to believe, right? So there, mm-hmm. there is this this tension in here. What You know, we, we've got... Um, we've got this laid out in the confessions. We've got the testimony of scripture of, um, uh, the, the faith of children. And, uh, and I, I think that really in what he was saying there at the end, I, I think I fully agree with, especially, you know, not setting an age to this, having children come in and be instructed, examined, and absolved when they're ready. And that may be younger and that may be later. Like it's okay. I, um, we, we, we talk a lot about maybe we should move the confirmation age, um, earlier, but there's not a lot of discussion on like, well, maybe we've got kids that they would do well to wait a little bit longer. Maybe they, they shouldn't be going through this until they're yeah. you know, 16 well, or something. Part of my right? struggle is this is too, is even from the time way back when, when I was an eighth grader. Okay. Um, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Eighth graders are different today than they were in my day. Okay, more and more you have eighth graders who are placed in their hands some very adult temptations, some very adult things that uh, um, when they're not ready and, uh, you know, an eighth grader today is not like an eighth grader was 20 years ago, 30 years or 40 years ago. I mean, they they really need some more. Uh, education earlier and some strengthening earlier before they get to where they are in eighth grade. Because sometimes pastors struggle with, by the time we get them in confirmation age, have I already lost them in some way, you know? Right. So, Peter says we're running out of time. Is that correct, Pete? Indeed it is. All right. By the way, have you seen the store, Kilgo? Have you seen the... I've heard about it. I've seen the... Uh, the Berg shirt. Uh, so is that is that the one you're going to get? The Berg shirt? Or are you going to get the sweatpants? <laughs> um, I will probably be getting none of them because <laughs> I don't want to be yelled at by my wife. <laughs> so, um, but Vicar, where can they get a hold of us? Well, they could email us at feedback at clericalerrors.org. They could find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast or on Twitter at clerical errors at p p for podcast and uh, if they'd like to donate they can do that from a link on our website to patreon all right so peter you have anything else to add yeah our, uh we, we mentioned the store the store is a uh, store.clericalerrors.org um, and we're not we're not making we're not don't, making don't think that we're <laughs> we're not yeah. making much money on this and it's uh, just a matter yeah um, if you order now, it should get there by Christmas, but that time frame is closing real quick. So if you're going to order for Christmas, try and do it today, I think. So, all right. Well, thank you for listening. I'm Bullhagen. I'm Kilgo. And I'm Vicar. And, uh, may your human tradition be according to God's command. Thank you for joining us. 
This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. On Twitter, at P for podcast, or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.